Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. And I look forward. We've got some great stuff happening on today's program. The second hour of today's uh, broadcast, we're, we're going to be talking with um, Professor John T. McGreevy. He is arguably America's most respected historian um, of things Catholic. Most recently, he's published a Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. It's a magnificent 500-page work, uh, well-written, uh, easy to follow. But I've known from previous works, uh, his book, Catholicism and American Freedom and History, was a, a real eye-opener for me. But he's also uh, written Parish Boundaries, the Catholic Encounter with Race in the 20th Century Urban North, American Jesuits in the World, How an Embattled Religious Order Made Modern Catholicism Global. He's joining me in the second hour to talk about a global history of the Church from the French Revolution right up to Pope Francis. So that's coming up in the second hour. In the first hour, I'm going to take a few words, uh, a little bit of time, to talk about, quote, Reformation Day. This is, uh, again, October 31st, celebrated by Protestant Christians, uh, not universally, but it's not uncommon. When I was a Protestant pastor, the truth is I never celebrated it, and I'll tell you why. But uh, I think it's worthwhile for us to think about that event associated with Luther's excommunication from the Catholic Church and some of the long-term consequences that flow from it. Also coming up today, a topic that we've never discussed on this program, because it's a little uh, a little uh, esoteric, I guess, and that is uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic Imagination. Uh, I came across a, a very good essay by Luella Diomico, Associate Professor of English at the University of the Incarnate Word. And uh, Poe never became a Catholic. I don't want to give that impression. But uh, there were Catholic influences in his life, which uh, Dr. Diomico says can be seen in his poems. There are fingerprints there, right? We're going to try to look at those fingerprints. And then we're going to be joined by Sandra Measel uh, to discuss the Inquisitor who wouldn't burn witches. You might find that a strange topic, but it's a real one. Right now, though, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, October 31st, it's the Feast of St. Alphonsus Rodriguez. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance to seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the number of Americans killed in the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel is up to 36. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in Israel's history. It was cruel hateful and repugnant. Austin testifying before a Senate panel today. A handful of Americans are also believed to be among the more than 200 hostages taken prisoner by Hamas. Austin appearing alongside Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, the two making the case for President Biden's $105 billion request for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the southern border. 
Israel is taking responsibility for an airstrike that the Hamas-run Gaza Interior Ministry claims was on a refugee camp in Gaza. The Gaza Interior Ministry said six bombs were dropped on a residential area during the strike that Israeli officials said killed a Hamas leader. The IDF statement didn't acknowledge any civilian casualties that may have been caused by the strike. New details are emerging about the mass shooter in Maine that killed 18 people before taking his own life. Robert Card was an Army reservist and was sent for an evaluation in July after he was seen behaving erratically. That's when the Army said Card shouldn't have a weapon, handle ammunition, or participate in live fire activity. And in some parts of the U.S., there are laws against houses being too scary this Halloween. Many homeowner associations have restrictions on how loud your Halloween sound effects may be or how late you're allowed to frighten people. Legally in the U.S., a trick-or-treater can sue a homeowner for scaring them too much and causing emotional distress. From your AlveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. October 31st is uh, really a multifaceted day. Protestants uh, within the usually the Reformed and Lutheran traditions are celebrated as Reformation Day. Uh, the pop public celebrates it as Halloween. Catholics uh, celebrate it as All Saints Day. But I want to take a moment, and we're going to talk about uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk a lot about, about All Saints Day. But I thought today I would take the advantage um, to talk about Reformation Day, because it when I was a Protestant pastor, I never celebrated it as Reformation Day. And one of the reasons was that I never thought that the gospel had been lost, uh, you know, for 1,500 years and then gloriously recovered by Martin Luther. I'd always assumed that to a more or less degree, Christianity had continued on through history with its ups and downs. And I figured at Luther's time in the 16th century, that was probably one of those down times, and the church needed you know, purification. But I never thought that the gospel had been, you know, obstructed or obscured to such a degree that it needed some sort of glorious recovery. In fact, at that time, um, I didn't even use the word Protestant to describe myself. I was part of those baby boomers who came to faith in Christ through C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. And so I always tried to focus on being, quote, a mere Christian. And I didn't want to be tagged or labeled as a denomination or a sect. Even the church I pastored was an independent church. I was its second pastor. I wasn't its founding pastor. But it turned out that I was actually a little naive in this attempt to resist labels. There's simply no way to avoid being labeled. You might not be a follower of Wesley or Luther or Calvin or William Booth, but you're a, fo- you're, you're a follower of somebody, even if it's yourself. So uh, after five years of pastoring, I realized that uh, I was something of a hypocrite. I had been complaining about the divisions within Christendom, but I was myself pastoring uh, an independent church that was not aligned with even any of the uh, major Christian traditions. Uh, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was like the kid who had murdered his parents and then complained about being an orphan. So I never celebrated Reformation Day because, one, 
I couldn't celebrate the divisions that followed from it. And two, I didn't think it was a glorious rediscovery of the gospel that had taken place then. I could have signed on to say it was a time of purification, but uh, I never thought the gospel had been lost. So so, somebody says, why don't you just become a Catholic then? Uh, There were a number of reasons, but primarily I disagreed about the Marian dogmas and uh, other problems could be resolved, but the Marian dogmas were the sticking point for me, and thankfully, by God's grace, uh, that was resolved, and I was able to come into full communion uh, with the Catholic faith. I tell the story uh, briefly in a book called Surprised by Truth, uh, edited by my friend Pat Madrid, and one reviewer, by the way, it's a good collection of uh, conversion stories, one reviewer looked at it and claimed that uh, my return to Catholicism only showed that I had a very weak ecclesiology, had a very weak doctrine of the Church to begin with. That's true. Um, But that was because, apart from Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, there really isn't, in my estimation, a a coherent doctrine of the Church within non-Catholic Christianity. I mean, Protestantism has never been able, from Luther's time on, to settle the question of what is the Church, where is the Church, who speaks for the Church. Now, I always want to say how grateful I am for my time as an evangelical Protestant. It was there. Uh, I was outside full communion with the Catholic Church, but I was able to learn to pray, to study Scripture, to stand up for my faith against hostile forces, learn how to share my faith with others. And then after pastoring for five years, the questions forced upon me as a pastor made me reconsider the wisdom of the Catholic Church and also caused me to rethink the Protestant Reformations. Uh, And one of the questions I asked myself was whether the Reformers themselves thought that their Reformation or Reformations was a success. You know, they had two goals. Fundamentally, they had two goals. Uh, The magisterial reformers wanted to renew Christ's one church. They actually believed that there was one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. Uh, they, They wanted to renew Christ's one church. And secondly, they wanted to produce a superior Christian, you know, real disciples, on fire Christians, people who really knew their faith. That's the two real goals that the magisterial magisterial reformers had. Sadly, using the criteria of the major reformers, um, the Reformation, they didn't consider the Reformation a success. First of all, there was no Reformation. From the beginning, it was Reformations, with the plural. Division was there two years of Luther's excommunication. These were theologically incompatible traditions. Only a few years after Luther's call for debate, the divided Protestant leadership conceded that they had failed to maintain the visible unity of the Church. Calvin wrote later to Lutheranism's second greatest theologian, Philip Melanchthon, he said, It is indescribably ridiculous that we, who are in opposition to the whole world, should be at the very beginning of the Reformation at issue among ourselves, end quote. To which Melanchthon replied, All the waters of the Elbe would not yield me tears sufficient to weep for the miseries caused by the Reformation, end quote. Disunity had so overtaken the reforming nations that ultimately only the police powers of the state could maintain peace and unity. 
So the religion of the ruler became the religion of the realm. The religion of the prince, the religion of the monarch, would become the religion of his people. So disunity, they did not manage to reform Christ's one church. They did split it. Secondly, uh, they did not produce a superior Christian. Luther himself wrote that, quote, life is as evil among us as among the papists. Martin Bucer, uh, one of the reformers who was a strongly ecumenical, Bucer agreed. He said, with us in Strasbourg, there's scarcely any church at all. There's no respect for the word. No one receives the sacrament, end quote. Erasmus, who was the Catholic humanist, himself a reformer and a pretty stern critic of the church, he had a common disappointment. He said, just look at the evangelical people. That was the word that was used to what we call Protestants today. Just look at the Protestant people. Have they become any better? Do they yield less to luxury, lust, and greed? Show me a man who the gospel has changed from a toper to a temperate man, from a brute to a gentle creature, and I'll show you many who have become even worse than they were, end quote. Now, in all fairness, uh, Catholics fell under the same severe condemnation. God may one day bring great good out of the breakup of medieval Christendom. I happen to believe he's already at work doing it. But it won't happen as long as October 31st is celebrated as a moment of great triumph or is condemned as an irrational rebellion against the benevolent church. Catholics can use this day to invite one another to seek and find the unity for which Jesus Christ prayed so ardently to his Heavenly Father. Before the Second Vatican Council, the various Protestant groups were pioneering ecumenism. Now, with the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church stepped in and took up its responsibility to not only explain to others the Church's teaching, but also to understand the outlook of non-Catholics and to engage them. In Lumen Gentium 8, the Council Fathers chose to say that the one Church of Christ subsists in rather than is identical with the Catholic Church. Now, it's worth pondering what this distinction means. The one Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. It means that we recognize a common baptism. If we said that the one Church of Christ was identical to the visible Catholic Church institutionally, we wouldn't be able to acknowledge our common baptism. Baptism does make us brothers of Christ and of one another, members of one body. We are united in some way. We are family. We talk about those who are baptized who are outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church as, what, separated brethren. But they're brethren in this one Church of Christ. We say they are in an imperfect communion. It's imperfect, but it's real. In the mind of the Church, all of the baptized are, in some way, Catholic but not all are in full communion. Catholics believe that all the elements that constitute the Church of Christ are present in the visible institutional Catholic Church. Whether we properly use those elements or not varies from Catholic to Catholic, but the Catholic Church has all the elements. In other words, the Catholic Church is playing with a full deck. Christian communities outside full communion with the Catholic faith are missing some of the cards in the deck. They may use the cards they have better than a lot of Catholics use the full deck. But the truth is, they're lacking the full deck that's found in the Catholic Church. So we say that the one Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church rather than is identical with it, because we can't deny that the baptized 
outside the visible boundaries of the church, are members in some way, and that they have access to elements of sanctification, even outside full communion with the church. In fact, Lumen Gentium teaches that many elements of sanctification and truth are found outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. Like what? Well, how about the scriptures? How about baptism? How about a doctrine of grace and the need for salvation? It also stresses that these gifts are meant to drive us toward perfect unity. Quote, since these are gifts belonging to the one church of Christ, they are forces impelling us towards Catholic unity. In his encyclical on ecumenism, Utterunum Sint, St. John Paul II asked the Christian communities around the world to pray and advise him on how the papacy, the charism of St. Peter, the Petrine primacy, can best serve the entire Christian community in restoring the unity that Christ wills for his church. The papacy, he says, is open to a new situation, not giving up anything which is essential to her mission, but open to new ways of serving all Christians. This is actually how Catholics can celebrate Reformation or Reformation's Day, um, remembering that the, what divides us needs to be overcome and to pray for God's grace that he will bring out of this major breakup of Christendom, that he will bring out something much greater. Following his advice, John Paul II's, let's listen to one another, always keeping before us the will of Christ for his church, always allowing ourselves to be deeply moved by Jesus' plea that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm Al Cresta. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. When families create daily rituals for playing together, they don't just prioritize creating a joyful family life, they're building a holy family life too. Playing board games and card games, having family movie nights, taking short walks or hikes, shooting hoop, playing catch, doing crafts, and other similar activities aren't just healthy ways families have fun. They're ways Catholic families can teach healthy attitudes toward play. In a world where fun is often equated with sinful or destructive behaviors, family play rituals help parents teach kids healthy, godly ways to enjoy themselves. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. The state has responsibility to orient things, but they can't take over the rights of the family, like in China, to have one child and that's it. It's a disaster over there. How many tens of millions of abortions have gone on? And one of the things that, as a result of that, is because of the preference to have boy children rather than girls, you have, for every thousand boys, there are 850 girls. This is a great imbalance. Same thing is going on in northern India. So this is where they, the government cannot take away the primary and inalienable responsibility of married couples and families. And they cannot employ methods which fail to respect the person and fundamental human rights. Beginning with the right to life, the government cannot force you to kill innocent human beings and still be a humanistic government. 
It's an evil government. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And, and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. Can we? Can we? Look at the star. This is it. You truly believe that this child is the chosen one. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem. Rated PG. Federal guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. The Spanish Inquisition is among the most misunderstood events in uh, church history. Uh, many people simply associate it with the Monty Python sketch. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, my guest, uh, Sandra Measle, is an American medievalist and writer, the author of hundreds of articles on history and art, uh, has written several books, including The Da Vinci Hoax, and co-authored uh, The Light Beyond All Shadow, Religious Experience in Tolkien's Work. She writes uh, in a recent article for Catholic World Report, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. And nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition to show wise restraint in dealing with witchcraft, unless somebody has heard of Alonso de Salazar Frias, the witch's advocate. Sandra, good to have you with us. Thanks. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. So let's talk about this fellow who I did not know about until I read your piece. And so uh, I guess what we should do is put the historical context in place first. Yes, uh, the Spanish Inquisition was founded in 1480 at the request of King Ferdinand of Aragon. Isabella was not on board with this, but it was per Ferdinand's project, because they wanted to track down and punish insincerely converted Jews, whom they thought were a distraction to the legitimately converted Jews uh, and were just causing uh, you know, problems in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Well... 
they were not involved with witchcraft. The secular governments would punish witchcraft. And then uh, when the, the Inquisition did get involved in this panic in the Basque country in the early 17th century, it did a surprising thing that no other individual or institution in the entire European witch panic of 400 years, they investigated what had actually happened. <laughs> and the smart man who did this, Alonso Frias y Salazar, Salazar y Frias, probably, was a canon lawyer who had worked for the Inquisition, and he saw this panic building in the Basque province that's up in the northeast of Spain. This started because the French Basque country on the other side of the mountains was having a panic uh, that was caused by an extremely ignorant but overzealous inquisitor who thought there were 3,000 organized witches terrorizing the area. Wow. And so he burned 50 to 80 of them. Mm. A woman, Spanish woman, who'd been working on the other side of the mountain came back home, and she said, oh yes, when I was in France, I was a witch, but I repented. And she talked too much, and she caused the attention of the authorities, mm. and pretty soon there were more accusations, and suddenly 2,000 people had come under suspicion. And so the Inquisition sent a team up there to investigate, and uh, Alonso Salazar y Frias was not satisfied with how the, invest how the proceedings were going. He thought his other two judges were very naive, and he did the simple, uh, what the prophet Daniel did. He questioned the witches separately. Mm. He, questioned, he, he questioned nine pairs of witches. The stories did not agree. Yeah. They said they had vandalized churches. He went out to the churches. Everything was in order. Hmm. He tested the supposed magic potions and poisons that the witches allegedly had in their houses, and they were harmless. Hmm. And he uh, drew up a very detailed investigation of 11,000 pages, apparently, yeah. and sent it back to the head headquarters of the Inquisition, the La Suprema, and he argued so cogently, these people cannot tell whether they have been to a witch's Sabbath in their dreams or in reality. Wow. So how are we going to determine who's guilty? No one can investigate someone's dreams. Yeah. And everything that I have seen says that there's nothing going on. Another factor that was noticed in this particular panic, which is called, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, I'm sure, is the Witches of Zaguramurdi. Okay. <laughs> if there are any Basques listening, I, I'm sorry <laughs> I mispronounced the name. But anyway, there were 2,000 people in jail or under investigation. Child, child witch finders were going through the community saying, oh, we can tell who they are. They have a mark in their eyes. Oh. And uh, vicious little children like that <clears throat> are also a factor in the famous Salem witch panics and in Swedish witch panic. Uh, you don't give children power of life and death. Yeah. It does not end well. Yeah. So anyway, Salazar Ifria's report convinced the head committee of the Inquisition. They overruled the two other judges, 
all the people were set free. They didn't suffer any destruction of their reputation and all that that goes on, if you've been even questioned by the Inquisition. And the Inquisition later would interfere in a civil persecution of witches. They saved people in Catalonia, Catalonia, which is part of Aragon. They saved people when the local civil authorities had hanged 300 people. One thing that isn't understood when you talk about witchcraft, it's as it's usually the secular government that is executing the witches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the church is involved, that's because a bishop or a monastery may be the secular government. That's what led to the most horrible cases in Germany. You had the prince bishops of these major cities were the government and the church, yeah. and they burned thousands of people. That is something the church really needs to answer for. Mm-hmm. The Spanish Inquisition comes out looking fairly good in yeah. all this. Yeah. The Spanish Inquisition, uh, I have... Um, a reading list at the end of the article, which I suggested to your producer that you could put on your website. Sure. There's a lot of good books on the Spanish Inquisition, because in the last generation, historians have looked at the records instead of repeating the black legend. And, dear listeners, please don't bother with Hilary Belloc's book on the Inquisition. It is worthless. Okay. He's not a historian. Yeah. Wonderful writer, but not a historian. Yeah. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. We have really, we have really good books. The Spanish Inquisition, by the standards of justice of its time, was relatively mild. Right. It only executed two percent of the people arrested. I remember it years limited... ago, I, I came across yeah. a BBC documentary on the Spanish Inquisition, and one of the people they interviewed was Henry Common. Common. Yes. Cayman. K a m e n, who was a, a Spanish historian, and. It was amazing to me. I'd never heard this before, that uh-huh. the Spanish Inquisition had been, you know, as you say, relatively mild uh, by the standards of the day. And uh, this seems to have, at least among academics, this seems to have taken hold now. That uh, Yes, yeah, it has. So that's good. Uh, and Cayman is the one, you want to read one book on the Spanish Inquisition, look up Henry Cayman, yeah, okay. K-A-M-E-N. And... Yes, they used torture, but they only used three types of torture which were not designed to mutilate, and they could only use them for a brief period every day. If you, I would not recommend anybody look up the kinds of torture that were being used other parts of Europe. Okay. I am sorry that I know. No. I know no. so that you don't have to. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let, me, yeah. let me ask you this. I, why, you know, today we're far, we're far from this. Uh, we live in a very different uh, thinking society. What always amazes me is the refusal to really um, be serious about empirical investigation here. In mm-hmm. other words, how, asking yourself, how do I know uh, that they were, um, they were flying around? Well, what's the evidence? And I, I don't quite get how what we would take as pretty standard uh, criteria for judging empirical truth, why that seems to have been lost on these people, many well, of these it, leaders. It's, it's also bound up with the use of Roman law procedures. 
okay. which require torture. And anybody would break under the kinds of torture that were used on these people. Okay. Uh, and you extract uh, a, a confession under torture. And what did you do? You went to the witch's Sabbath, and we danced, and we fornicated, and we feasted. And who did you see at the witch's Sabbath? Well, I saw Johan and and Katrina, and and they were forced to name their neighbors. Okay. And then you torture the neighbors, and that's how the big panics in Germany start. But Salazar Ifrias questioned the people separately. He didn't rely on torture. He didn't believe evidence gained under torture was mm-hmm. worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, you know, the same thing could apply to the kinds of conspiracy theories that are out there. Well, how do you know they're doing these nefarious things? Right. Where's the proof? Yeah. And now, of course, you can't believe anything you see on the Internet necessarily. You can't necessarily believe photographs right. or videos. We are in a crisis on on the uses of evidence yeah. and it's only going yeah. to get worse. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I agree. Yeah. And I think this is again why I think articles like yours is so helpful uh it not only informs us about the era that you're investigating but it also forces us to be uh clear on how we evaluate uh, statements, how we evaluate evidence, what tests do we have out yeah. there um, to establish uh, empirical truths. Now, yeah. how was he, so what became of him? Did, did he... Um, he? Well, he wound up getting on the, the head committee, the La Suprema himself. Okay. Uh, this These events took place in 1610, and uh, he died in 1636. He had a nice career as an inquisitor, um, but he was forgotten until a gentleman named Gustav Henning, Henningsen the, wrote a book called The Witch's Advocate, and I happened to get that book <laughs> because I had seen it in a footnote in another book by William Monter, uh, who's also an authority on this kind of stuff. And, oh, it was fascinating. And my goodness, they have these contemporary illustrations of what a witch sabbat is supposed to look like that is just funny (laughs) crude little drawings of you know people dancing around and bowing to satan and the particular feature of the basque witch accusations was that they had child witches who took care of the witches familiars while the adults were doing naughty things and this is all in this picture (laughs) Sandra, thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Sandra Measle, the inquisitor who wouldn't burn witches. We'll have it in the Cresta Guest Archives for you. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Pro-life across It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. 
In my 30 plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Father Benedict Groeschel. In the church, we speak of seven gifts wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, loyalty, courage, and reverence or fear of the Lord. When I speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these gifts come, they give you the ability to go beyond your strength. If you're struggling to be a good person, a good member of your religion, you know it's a struggle and you don't always make it. I've been at it many, many decades and I still struggle and trip and fall and have holes in my socks. Struggling to be a good person, something that we need help at. And this help comes to us by these gifts of the Holy Spirit. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Can a church made up of sinners still be holy? St. Teresa, the little flower, says this about the Catholic Church. If the church was a body composed of different members, it could not lack the noblest of all. It must have a heart and a heart burning with love. And I realized that this love alone was the true motive force which ennobled the other members of the church to act. If it ceased to function, the apostles would forget to preach the gospel. The martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. Love, in fact, is the vocation which includes all others. It is a universe of its own, comprising all time and space. It is eternal. The Catholic Catechism tells us that our divine Lord, who knew nothing of sin, came only to expiate sin. So the church embraces sinners in order to save them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Edgar Allan Poe is uh, you know, one of the chief figures in American literary history, and um, I, to be honest with you, I I haven't thought much of him uh, since 
I did some reading back when I was an undergraduate years, many years ago. But I came across uh, an essay in Church Life Journal called Suffering and Solace, Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic Imagination. And it hooked my attention and really opened my eyes to, you might say, some of the fingerprints of Catholic uh, thought and influence in Edgar Allan Poe's poems. Uh, my guest is Dr. Luella D'Amico, Associate Professor of English and the Women's and Gender Studies Coordinator at the University of the Incarnate Word. She's the editor of Girls Series Fiction and American Popular Culture, co-editor of Reading Transatlantic Girlhood in the Long 19th Century, and, uh, as I said, the author of Suffering and Solace, Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic Imagination. Luella, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me and for reading the essay. <laughs> well, I it was it really hooked me. I I had never considered Poe as having any interest or curiosity about Catholicism, and he you know he never did uh, become a Catholic, right? No, he never did become a Catholic, but he was certainly interested in faith, and he. You know, it, it, sort of exploring the essay. He spent time with the Jesuits. He was right next to Fordham. And you can tell he he was someone, right, who talked and thought a lot about morality. And I think the Catholic faith was one way for him to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lead off by talking about his essay, Philosophy of Composition, where he makes it, which is about the process of writing his most famous poem, uh, The Raven, and he there says, the death of a po- beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world. Uh, that's not the first thing that would have occurred to me. Um, but what did he mean? I don't know if it's the first thing that would occur to most people, but I do think that it is a common literary trope that you see, that people are really interested in suffering and what that means. And especially the death of the women in their lives. I mean, if we even think about the death of beautiful women, mystery genre that you recognize. Luella, Luella, I'm sorry sorry to stop you. We're having some sort of technical problem here, and I'm missing about uh, 30% of what you're saying. So I'm going to have to have my producer uh, restruct, get, get this phone line straightened out so we can continue the conversation. So just give us a moment here, and we'll try to get this corrected. Uh, my guest, again, is Dr. Luella D'Amico, Associate Professor of English uh, at University of the Incarnate Word, and, um, as I said, recently came across her essay, uh, Suffering and Solace, Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic Imagination, we're talking about his his statement that the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world. He wrote those words in 1846. That's a year before his young wife, Virginia, died of tuberculosis. And actually during the time that he witnessed her struggling with her illness. And um, Luella, you back with us? I'm back here. I'm okay. not sure what happened. I apologize. No, that's okay. It's probably at our end. Mysterious with Halloween. <laughs> so he, suppose it makes this statement about uh, the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world. That's directly related to his experience of watching his uh, suffering wife uh, dying of tuberculosis. 
Yes, and not only his wife. So his mother died when he was quite young of tuberculosis, and he had an adoptive mother who also died of tuberculosis. And then the woman who really jump-started his career in terms of making him sort of excited about literature, he was his best friend's mother in Virginia. She died of tuberculosis. So really every woman who he had a close connection with died in this really awful way. And he'd spent about a year and a half watching his wife just go go through the disease and seeing her cough up blood and all of the symptoms. Mm. And that's when he moved um, to, to Fordham and met the Jesuits. And so did he spend, uh, how, how did he relate to the Jesuits there? Were they you know, were they friends? Did they hang out together? Did he pray with them? What what did they do? So he, we don't know if he prayed with them, but they were certainly friends. He would, he was probably known as a drunk and a gambler. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that the Jesuits were drunks and gamblers, but they partook in playing with games with him. They would, they would drink with him. Sure. And they would talk. And they would have really deep philosophical discussions about faith and morality and um, he has this uh quote that says they never try to push religion on him uh-huh. like he says they smoked and drank and played cards and never said a word about religion <laughs> okay. but we know that he was you know having lots of discussions with them and really had an affection for them now this this was during a time uh, in american history where there's a good deal of anti-catholicism uh in our society and culture was that the a disincentive for him to, you know, think things Catholic? Yes. I mean, especially if you're thinking about the the popular presses at the time, they're not publishing anything that is specifically Catholic Mm -hmm. in nature. And Poe makes it a point to publish a Catholic hymn. He seeks out Catholic friends. And this isn't something that would help his career. In fact, it would do quite the opposite. And he was never someone who was really economically viable. We think of him as famous, perhaps even during his time, but he never made much money. And he really didn't make the types of career decisions that I think now looking back, we're like, oh, Poe, if only you would have done this or that. But he... He really followed his heart in terms of what he was writing about. And so when he was writing about Catholicism, he knew that this could impact his career, but he, he didn't care. It, he, there's a poem, uh, 1845, called um, A Catholic Hymn, that first appeared in an 1835 short story you write, uh, entitled Morella. Uh, t- tell me about the, the title, A Catholic Hymn. So... Poe originally had this in the short story that is, it's, with the inclusion of the poem, you can tell that it is, it's about a Mary figure. It's about a woman who gives birth and then she ends up dying, <laughs> surprised, mm. but her child sort of lives on and is this version of her. He takes this point out um, in, 18, um, in 1845. As he's living near the Jesuits, he takes this poem from the short story and he revises it and makes it a specific Catholic hymn. And so there's this idea that he's living next to Fordham. He's hearing the Angelus uh, at his house, the bells ringing out the Angelus, and he revises it 
to and, and says, right, this is not just a poem and a short story. He takes it out of that short story when he publishes it, and he calls it a Catholic hymn. And it is this beautiful hymn to Mary, and he would have known what this meant when he's saying, right, I'm writing a hymn, I'm writing this praise, um, this praise song. Now, there's another uh, poem called The Bells, and when he writes The Bells, he's referring to... Yeah, so a lot of uh, a lot of scholars will say that he is referring specifically to the bells at Florida that that they were so close that they could you could feel it in their house. It sort of shaked the house where he and Virginia lived, and he wrote the bells and particularly talked about the the ringing and the shaking and the clank. Um, and you can see that perhaps this is another ode to I think sort of love for. For Catholic music, I guess you yeah, could say, for yeah. these Catholic rituals. And the um, the the bell, the old Edgar Allan is what um, it's called now. You can actually go and see it inside Fordham's library, the original one. Hmm. Uh, now, uh, he's considered uh, a, a romantic uh, uh, literary figure, is that right? Yes, mm-hmm. Dark romantic, but certainly romantic. Yeah, and I, I just—they seem to have a greater appreciation for transcendence and um, religion, especially more exotic religions. Uh, did he? Did he write in his in his letters uh, any uh, expository work that we have from him? Did he ever express what his faith commitments were? No, so he grew up Episcopalian, and we know that he was searching and seeking for faith tradition, but he never said, I am particularly this way. And one thing that I think is really interesting for him is that a lot of the other writers, sort of the the more esteemed writers, the ones who had money, like, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, they really took to Eastern religions and began incorporating those in their writing, and Poe didn't do any of that. Um, He would borrow a little, but his main imagery really is Christian imagery, and he makes sure to, I think, know his audience, but also explore most what really affected him, right? He didn't care what anyone else was going to, to think. Now, in, in line four of Catholic hymn, he does use the phrase Mother of God. Uh, is that a direct reference to the Theotokos? So I, I think it is, and I think he has this idea, which is fascinating in Poe, of Mary's connection with Jesus. Um, in Joy and Woe and Good and Ill, he's talking about the... Um, the feelings, the mystery of the angelus, and he says, Mother of God, be with me still. Mm. He's, he's praying, and he is recognizing her connection specifically to Jesus, to the Incarnation. And a little bit uh, later on in the poem, he talks about, um, Thy grace did guide to thine and thee. And this was a specific change that he made from the 1835 version, which before said, Thy love did guide to thine and thee. But love can come from human to human. Like, we can love each other, but grace comes from God. And so there is this idea that Mary directs to God, 
dine and be, and then he repeats that as the very last line, be and dine. So Mary and her son, Jesus. So we have this direct reference to Jesus and to her role, I think, as as Theotokos. He he would have known that in the studies. Now, you know, he he clearly finds uh, solace in this virginal female figure like Mary. Um, But Mary's a woman whose body never decays or dies. His wife's certainly decayed and died. How's he put those two together? Well, I think that in this way, Mary stays rather rather perfect for him, that he doesn't have to deal with the death, the decay, that she is this figure that he can look to and say, there's hope. And this is yes. one of his only hopeful poems. If you read the rest of his work, it's not hopeful, but this one is. And I think there's this, at least this yearning for the hope that religion offers, and specifically the idea of a woman who won't abandon him, someone who will be there. So I think it it matters. I think she's assumed into into heaven and never and never actually decomposes as he watched his wife die, as he watched his mother die, as he watched his foster mother die. It just doesn't happen with Mary. No. No that's very very good. Very, very interesting. Um <clears throat> So he he sees possibility for hope in this figure of Mary Theotokos, virginal figure whose body never decays. Um, I mean that's a fairly that seems to be a fairly explicit theological uh, datum. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I, uh, I just heard the music coming up. We don't have we're out of time, but that's that is. I'd love to talk more uh, about this and get <laughs> to know be him wonderful. better. <laughs> yes, and read this poem today. I think it's a wonderful poem for a praise poem for Halloween. All right, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye bye, Dr. Luella D'Amico from uh, University of the Incarnate Word on Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic Imagination. Is social media leading to more young women getting cosmetic surgery? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Our daughter and family just welcomed a new baby girl into the world. The boys in our family are now outnumbered for sure. I've witnessed how some of our girls often struggle with self-image and body issues. These issues are now being enhanced by social media. First Peter teaches us that it is not outward beauty that is important, but it should be that of our inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Studies indicate that young women are going under the knife for more cosmetic procedures in direct response to social media. Encourage the women in your life to practice self-compassion. Build them up. Help them find ways to be content in their own skin. True self-esteem is having confidence that I am who God says I am. For more on this, head over to our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Can you imagine receiving a phone call from your child's roommate while they are away at college telling you that your son or daughter had an accident and has been admitted to the emergency room, but they don't know anything more? In a panic, you call around the hospitals asking about your child. However, instead of being helped, you are told they cannot share information with you because of HIPAA privacy. You are terrified, worried sick for your child. How do you prevent this situation from happening to you? 
a healthcare durable power of attorney. This legal document will appoint you as their healthcare agent, granting you the rights to all information in an emergency and to make medical decisions on their behalf. As soon as you're able to, you need your child to sign these documents in order to prevent the nightmarish situation we've just discussed. They must be signed, stored, and easy to access so that you can have them at your fingertips the moment disaster strikes. This Medical Moment, brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. And good afternoon. I'm Al Creston. Next hour, we've got a real treat. Uh, my guest is uh, Professor John T. McGreevy. He is uh, provost and also a professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of several books uh, about Catholic history, and uh, we're going to look at his most recent one, Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. I'll tell you, it's a magnificent uh, piece of work. I've been reading it, and uh, I think that he helps orient us to the ongoing conflict in the Catholic Church, but he also puts it in a very grand narrative. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining me. And we're going to take time this hour to look over a history of the Catholic Church from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. My guest uh, be John T. McGreevy. He is a provost and professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of several books uh, dealing with things Catholic, uh, including uh, American Jesuits in the World, how an embattled religious order made modern Catholicism global. Uh, he's written an outstanding book called Catholicism and American Freedom, a history, which I have to say uh, was one of the most important books I read after I returned to the Catholic faith. It helped orient me to, you know, Catholic, Catholic history uh, in America, which is very different than Catholic history in Europe. And so uh, he's going to take time with us to take a look at this global history of Catholicism, going all the French Revolution to Pope Francis. And in fact, it's interesting, in the book, he sees two events that were, I won't quite say equally momentous, because I don't know if that's what he would say, but they were both had, you might say, revolutionary impact. One was the French Revolution. It was uh, disruptive and momentous. And the second was the Second Vatican Council. Momentous, disruptive. And those are kind of two poles uh, that uh, function in this uh, book to give us the story of modern Catholicism. So stay with me. Uh, Professor McGreevy joining us in just a few minutes. But right now, let's get today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, October 31st. It's the Feast of St. Alphonsus Rodriguez. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance to seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Democrats are speaking out against House Speaker Mike Johnson's bill to provide aid for Israel. Senate Democrats have been clear. 
The right and only path forward is bipartisanship. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the legislation is purely partisan and inadequate as it leaves out funding for Ukraine and humanitarian aid for Gaza. The bill pushed by Speaker Johnson includes more than $14 billion in emergency funding for Israel while clawing back the same amount of IRS funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. Democrats want to pass President Biden's $105 billion supplemental package that includes funding for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the southern border. The threat of terrorism in the U.S. has hit a whole other level following Hamas's attack on Israel. ISIS urged its followers to target Jewish communities. Hezbollah has publicly expressed its support for Hamas several years ago. That's FBI Director Christopher Wray, who said the most immediate concern is the violent extremists that will draw inspiration from the conflict in the Middle East and target Americans. The parent company of Bud Light is still suffering a bit of a hangover. Roy O'Neill reports. Globally, revenue and profits at Anheuser-Busch InBev are up, but in the U.S., the beer numbers are worse than flat. Revenue is down 13%, domestic profits down 29% since a company promotion with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney led to protests. Bud Light did recently announce a new multi-year partnership with the UFC, hoping the MMA league will boost beer sales. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Dr. John McGreevy is provost and professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of several uh, important books, uh, including American Jesuits in the World, How an Embattled Religious Order Made Modern Catholicism Global, and Catholicism and American Freedom, a History, which I found personally very helpful in orienting myself to American Catholic history. Recently, he's published uh, a magisterial volume, um, it is called Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. And Dr. McGreevy, a great pleasure to have you with me again. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let's, uh, let's start out. You, you point out that uh, a better understanding of Catholicism will enhance our understanding of the modern world. How so? Well, um even though a lot of people don't realize it, Catholicism is the most multicultural, multicultural, uh, multilingual, and biggest organization in the world. Uh, 1.2 billion baptized Catholics. Uh, and so any, you know, a lot of historians now are interested in global history. I'm one of them. And how do we think about history beyond the nation state? And any attempt to do that uh, without looking carefully at Catholicism is inadequate. It's a mistake. Um, it's such a pervasive global institution that we need to think about Catholicism as we think about global trends in history. Yeah, uh, and and uh, you know, 1.2 billion baptized members, most of whom uh, are living in the global South. I think, right? Yeah, I often say, you know, the the. Average Catholic in the woman, a Catholic in the world right now, is not a person who looks like me. I'm a white guy who grew up in South Dakota. Uh, instead, it's a woman of color living in Manila or Costa Rica or Nigeria. That is the modal Catholic right now, and American Catholics, I think, make up about six percent of the world's Catholics. And it's just a reminder of how big, diverse. 
and complicated the church is. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, the book begins with the French Revolution, and <clears throat> throughout the book, you've got kind of two poles uh, th- that recur. You've got what you call ultramontanism, and you've got Reformed Catholicism. Just briefly describe what you mean by ultramontanism and by Reformed Catholicism, and then give us an example of one positive contribution and one failure of each. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you're a cl- good close reader. Thank you for that. Um, ultramontanism, it's a fancy word, but really all it means is over the mountains toward Rome. Okay. And so... The ultramontane movement existed in the 18th century, but really gets going in the 19th century in reaction to the French Revolution, a sense that Catholicism needed to protect its members from uh, the, the persecutions that were unleashed during the French Revolution, the sense that much of the world might be somewhat uh, anti-Catholic, or at least parts of the world would be. And in turn, Catholics need to protect themselves by building their own institutions. One huge achievement of ultramontanism was developing a popular piety that really resonated at all levels of society, but even much more with working class and immigrant and poor people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that piety is familiar even now. So rosaries and the Sacred Heart and novenas and uh, Gothic cathedrals, all of which conveyed a sense that Jesus cared about these individuals deeply, even if they were unknown, if they were poor, if they were struggling, if they were in turmoil. That was profound, um, that capacity to have a kind of populist, successful piety, mm-hmm. uh, a huge achievement. A uh, huge problem for the ultramontanist movement mm-hmm. as it developed over the 19th century was often a kind of unthinking hostility to the modern world. And so ultramontanists were intermittently excited about, but then very cool about democracy, suspicious of claims of individual rights, Um, you know, not very forward-thinking on role of women, although there's a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes that hostility to... Um, many dimensions of the modern world, a suspicious attitude uh, inhibited ultramontanism okay. and, and created problems by the mid-20th century. And Reformed Catholicism? Yeah. Reformed Catholicism was quite different. And instead of being populist, it was elite. And it was a sense in the 18th century among some highly educated people um, that the church needed to reform. Uh, and so even in the 18th century, in the 1780s, uh, these Reformed Catholics are talking about, should the liturgy not be in Latin, but in the vernacular languages, German, mm-hmm. French, French, Spanish, Portuguese, etc.? And should uh, lay people have a role in parish councils? And should um, lay people have a role in selecting bishops? And could we diminish the importance of the papacy? Because it really should be more of a national church loosely connected to the papacy in Rome. And that tension between an ultramontane vision of the church and what I call a reformed Catholic vision of the church really does exist through most of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. The ultramontanes triumph. The moment of their triumph really is in 1870, 
at the First Vatican Council, where it's a very papal-oriented uh, set of documents that come out of the First Vatican Council, including the claim that the Pope could be infallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed as if calligraphorum was done. Uh, but then some dimensions of it came back in the context of the Second Vatican Council. There's a wonderful book by actually Sean Blanchard, a historian in Australia, that talks about echoes of the 1780s Catholic Reform debates uh, that appear in the Second Vatican Council. So where would a, where would a, a figure like John Henry Newman fit in this you know, kind of tr- two-dimensional, or this polarization? Tricky. Yeah, tricky. Um, on both sides, because he's such a complex yeah. figure. Yeah. On the one hand, very um, enthusiastic about forms of ultramontane piety, in some ways quite enthusiastic about papal authority in some ways. Uh, on the other hand, was not in favor of the Declaration of Infallibility, uh, worried that there was too much hostility to good things uh, in the modern world. So a little bit of a mixture of both. Newman gets kind of resurrected, in a way, in the 1950s and 1960s for his idea that church teaching can evolve, uh, Mm -hmm. that tradition is not static. And I would put that much more on the Catholic Reform side of the equation as opposed to Ultramontane. What would be an example of uh, failure uh, of Reformed Catholicism? You know, it never developed. A, it was, I think, yeah, this is a kind of a cruel term, but snobbish. Okay. <laughs> you know, it was never. It never developed really a popular piety. So while the ultramontane Catholics are are developing a, a very successful mode of parish mission, and they're sending missionaries out all over the world, the Reformed Catholics was sort of more intellectuals and elites, mm-hmm. and it didn't really get at. Uh, what was needed to develop a popular piety, and in fact, was sometimes kind of scornful of it. That was a that was one reason why the Ultramontanes really do triumph. Numbers are on their side, mm-hmm. unquestionably. Mm-hmm. You begin with the French Revolution. <clears throat> uh, give us some idea of why this and the subsequent Napoleonic Wars were the most disruptive event in modern Catholic history. So I really debated when I was writing the book, beginning with the Reformation, which was you know a lot earlier than that in the right. 16th century, or beginning with the French Revolution, both highly disruptive events. I chose the French Revolution because the book is really about modern Catholicism, 19th and 20th century, and a lot of people would say the modern era begins with the French Revolution. The French Revolution is the first you know, major state where it's democracy, okay, mm-hmm. at least in the first phase, where, where citizens have a role in selecting their leaders, and there are conventions, and the idea of human rights, and they're going to abolish slavery. It turns, in the middle of the revolution, into a more uh, despotic state. And as part of that, there is significant persecution of Christianity. And that has immense impact uh, not just across Europe, but across the world. It has impact across Europe because France is the most important country in Europe, and French Catholicism is shattered and devastated by the end of the French Revolution. And then Napoleon kind of takes dimensions of the French Revolution everywhere in Europe. And so it goes to Italy, it goes to uh, the Austrian Habsburg Empire, and, and a whole range of other places. 
but it even goes abroad. And so countries like Haiti uh, have a kind of version of the French Revolution in Haiti, and there's a very intense Catholic debate there. And so what I say is the French Revolution helps set up this ultramontane Catholic reform tension, and the echoes of the French Revolution reverberate not just across Europe, but across the world. Mm. Uh, if, uh, this was the papacy's first encounter with what we might call democracy. Mm-hmm. And it would have, would, would, can you imagine the history of the church <clears throat> being different uh, had the papacy's first exposure to democracy not been uh, in a movement which was anti clerical, anti ecclesial? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Remember, the first phase of the French Revolution was not anti-clerical or or profoundly anti-ecclesial. There were some dimensions of it that were. But many parish priests were enthusiastic supporters. In fact, we think about half of the early French Revolution. Wow. And, and, And basically the idea that, you know, and they were often very critical of their bishops, Remember, bishops and, and priests are paid by the state in right, France. Right. Many bishops were corrupt, um, and becoming a bishop was just part of a way to get more money. Some bishops had mistresses. I mean, it was not, in that sense, some senses, a very healthy church. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the French Revolution became persecution-minded, you're right, people's attitudes shifted, and that did probably set a little bit of a template of antagonism to democracy. However, if you go to Latin America, where is the most democratic part of the world in the 1820s and 1830s, um, many, many Catholics are supportive of democracy there. I really see the turning point as 1848. There are all these revolutions across Europe that are democratic revolutions again in 1848, and they become very anti-papal too, especially in Rome. And that was a turning point where Pius IX who was Pope then, really moved away from early endorsements of what he called liberalism and democracy and said, no, no, we need to focus on our own institutions. That's not important. And often these liberals are want to persecute the church. And it took a long time to move beyond that suspicion and hostility. Hmm. In some ways it takes till the Second Vatican Council. To, to move beyond that. Um, I want to come back. We're going to have to take a break in just a moment here. But when we come back, I want to talk about... Uh, we take we take the nation state as a as a given, uh, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't remember a world uh, that, that before the arrival of nation states. So I want to talk about why the the new nation states of Europe uh, end up seeing the church as a rival uh, to their agendas. We'll come back on the other side of the break and pick that up. My guest is Dr. John McGreevy. He is author most recently of a magnificent work called Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. I'm Al Cresta. We're coming right back. Dr. Ray Garendi. When I've had enough. I ask parents, when do you decide to discipline? One of the most common answers is, when I've had enough. If discipline is designed to teach, then we need to discipline before we've had enough. 
We need to discipline because the behavior's wrong, not because emotionally it's pushed us to our edge. Besides, when you get to when you've had enough, you're much more likely to yell and scream and say things that you have to go to confession for. So, the suggestion is discipline out of principle, not emotion. Principle means because it needs discipline and I'm going to do it when I'm calm. Emotion means I'm going to be moved to do it just because I'm mad. Where has the church reached perfection? In the person of the Blessed Mother, according to the Catholic Catechism, who is without spot or wrinkle. We the faithful are still striving to conquer sin and increase in holiness. The word Catholic means universal. The church is Catholic in a double sense. First, the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her. Where there is Christ Jesus, there is the church, says the Catechism. From him, she receives the fullness of the means of salvation, correct and complete confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry in apostolic succession. Secondly, the church is Catholic because she has been sent by Christ to the whole human race. In the beginning, God made human nature one and has decreed that all his children who were scattered should finally be gathered together as one. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. John McGreevy, a provost and professor of history at the University of Notre Dame and author most recently of Catholicism, 
in global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. As I was saying before the break, uh, John, we, we all assumed the nation-state. We think uh, nation-states have been the, the form that humans use to organize themselves for a long time. But uh, the nation-state has an, a fairly recent uh, origin. Tell us, help us orient to how the emergence of the nation-state became a rival to the church. Yeah, that's another interesting question. Um, so the the great era of emergence of the nation states, modern Germany, modern Italy, frankly, after the Civil War, the modern United States, modern Argentina, modern Brazil, is the 19th century. And the idea that a nation state should be geographically contiguous, uh, voters in some way should be, be able to elect uh, their leaders, uh, there should be flags, there should be stamps, passports, all the things that we associate now with a nation state. Those are almost all invented in the 19th century. <laughs> now, lots of Catholics were very comfortable with those nation states. Lots of leaders of those nation states, though, were suspicious of a global Catholic Church. You know, how are we going to reconcile what I began the podcast talking about, the most global institution in the world, with the fact that the nation-state wanted to conserve its own authority. It didn't want authority going to global institutions. The sharpest um, uh, conflicts were over education, right? Very quickly, it became clear that one of the main jobs of a nation-state in Germany, in Italy, in France, in the United States, even in Britain, uh, in Brazil, in Argentina, one of the main jobs of a nation-state in the 19th century is to control the education of its young people. Hmm. Because you want to control the education of young people to prepare future citizens, future right. leaders in the nation state. You want to make sure that they're loyal and that they're patriotic and that they believe in the nation state. Of course, the largest system of schools across Europe and North America uh, was Catholic. Yeah. And so that was an immediate point of tension. Should there be funding for Catholic schools? Should they be allowed? Um, what kind of citizens or patriots will we develop uh, in the context of Catholic education? Catholics, on the other hand, are saying, wait a second. The nation state isn't our ultimate authority. It's the church. And there should be a role for the church in these new nation states. And some more liberal Catholics are trying to find a, a middle ground, and, and more conservative ultramontane Catholics like Pius IX are not really interested in a middle ground. <laughs> um, and so there's real tension over education, the role of religious orders, which are global by definition, uh, within the nation state, and a range of other topics. And so there, uh, one of the great themes of 19th century global history, you know, along with, let's say, in new technology like the telegraph and, and the, the train, and along with the formation of nation states, is conflict between nation states and Catholics. It's one of the great themes of the era, and so I do talk about that quite a bit in the book. Uh, when I was raised in uh, the 1950s and into the early 60s anyways, um, I can remember as a Catholic kid, um, you know, always saying that you know I'm I'm an American, uh, and yeah. and feeling as though there was no uh, no attention at all between 
the church uh, and the nation. Uh, now, I, I, I look back at myself then and I say, oh, I didn't realize <laughs> I didn't realize what was going on. But but how did people prove, how, how did citizens then prove that they were good patriots to secular rulers? In other words, did they have to, did they have to uh, betray the church in some way? Did they have to uh, acknowledge that the state could usurp uh, the church's uh, teaching or functions in some way? Well, I mean, what we know now is that when you were a kid— in the 50s and early 60s, was the high point of the idea that there was no tension between Catholics yeah. and the American nation state. Right, right. You might have felt differently if you were in a different country, right? If you were in the Soviet Union, you knew you couldn't be a Catholic, right? right? Because yeah. there was attacks on religious freedom there, very significant attacks, or in communist China. But in the United States, they seemed to blend perfectly. And I don't know if you remember how old you are, but if you remember as a kid, John Kennedy's election in 1960, yeah. that seemed a, a, a symbol of the fact that Catholics were fully American and Absolutely. had no apologies to make. <laughs> yep. And... Um, Yet, of course, that came after one of the things that really binds people to nation-states, which is a big war. Mm. Uh, it came after World War II when Catholics served in the war as much or more as than anybody else. And so, it would have, and Catholic chaplains were an important part of the chaplaincy, and, and Catholic leaders endorsed the war against Hitler's Germany and, and fascist Japan. And so it would have seemed extraordinary to try and say, oh, there's some divide between Catholics and the nation-state. I do think we're at a somewhat different moment now. Mm -hmm. um, not entirely different, but somewhat different. Uh, there's more skepticism on both left and right. Uh, about the nation state, and, right. and that's not always good, I think. Uh, but that was the high point in the United States of a kind of alliance between Catholicism and the nation state. So the, the nation, uh, if, if you're willing to shed your blood for the nation, the nation's going to have a hard time thinking poorly of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wars, historians often say this, I think it's true, wars strengthen the state, you know, uh, and um, kind of almost naturally, uh, unless there's massive dissent, as there was in Vietnam. That, that ends up playing out differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the Church uh, developed many institutions, hospitals and schools and orphanages, and they were providing so, what we today would call social services mm -hmm. before the state became the actor uh, of first recourse uh, here. Did this become a point of tension between the church and the state, or did it help, uh, you know, did it lead to fruitful partnership? Yeah, both. Uh, one thing I always say when talking about this topic is to remind ourselves that this vast network of Catholic schools, orphanages, hospitals, charities like Catholic Charities, all kinds of other clubs and associations, that vast network, the primary movers of it were women religious or nuns. Yeah. That's right. And so it's just worth remembering that's kind of how it was built in 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 most of Europe and in North America, sometimes in, and as they used to say, missionary countries as well. Uh, and as the number of women religious declined, so too did some of the Catholic capacities sustain those institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there was cooperation. Um, I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and the first hospital in Sioux Falls 
uh, one of the first two hospitals, was a Catholic hospital. And the community, which was overwhelmingly Protestant, eagerly welcomed it. Yeah. You know, they saw this as an advantage and a wonderful thing. Other times there was real conflict. I mentioned conflict over the schools. That could be pretty intense. Um, and I talk about that a little bit in the book and uh, just the really fierce debates over public funding for Catholic schools. And sometimes yeah. there were violent clashes and all that kind of thing. It's still a point there of tension disputes. in the United States. I mean, a lot of, lot of, uh, it's still a point of tension in the United States. Many, many states have Blaine yeah. amendments. Um, yep, yeah. yep. And those came about in that late 19th century when states were trying to say, no, 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 we have control over education. Um, So very very significant amount of contention there. A lot of contention, interestingly, around orphanages. Hmm. Because the the point of dispute was uh, if the state ran the orphanage, they often didn't care what religion the parents were who would adopt children from the orphanage. So if a Catholic mother dropped off a child that she felt she couldn't support to an orphanage, which when in, in an era of no social services was disturbingly common, uh, the state-run orphanages didn't worry about, was this child be raised as Catholic? Catholic orphanages, of course, did. Yeah. Uh, and they might take children from all families, but they would make sure that Catholic children would be raised in Catholic families. And that became a huge point of dispute in cities like New York. Hmm. Uh, and that's one reason women religious especially entered the world of orphanages. Interesting. Uh, so it's a mixture of cooperation. We want to not say it was all conflict, but then there was also conflict. Uh, we hear a lot in America over the last 30 years of culture wars. Um, what was the culture comp of Bismarck? Uh, describe, how does it compare with what we see here in the United States? Well, uh, you know, Kulturkampf stands for culture war, you know, uh, in German, and it was pretty intense, uh, more intense than what we've seen in the United States yeah. in the last 30 years, that's even though right. that's been intense, too. Um, and Bismarck was one of these 19th century nationalist leaders, like uh, Garibaldi in Italy and, and, and like others uh, in both Europe and Latin America, who saw Catholicism as a threat. By the way, I'd put U.S. Grant, President Grant, in that category, too. Oh, okay. Worried about, worried about Catholic influence. And Bismarck actually thought it could destroy the newly united Germany. Germany really only becomes a united country in 1870. And, it, he, and Prussia is united with the Rhineland. And the Rhineland and, and Bavaria were overwhelmingly Catholic. And he's worried that an international Catholic church, which just declared its pope infallible, has all these religious orders, has vast networks of Catholic schools, is going to be impossible for him to control. Hmm. So he basically closes all the Catholic schools. He forces members of most men's religious orders, especially the Jesuits, we thought were conniving leaders uh, of resistance, but also some women religious, to leave the country. Now, ironically, they go to other countries, including the United States, and build Catholic schools there. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of wages a, a persecution campaign against seminaries and Catholic churches and organizations and says they're not capable of training good Germans, patriotic Germans. Their highest allegiance is always to this foreign power in Rome. We have no conflict, he would say, with German Catholicism, but their real allegiance is to Rome. Yeah. Uh, Bismarck 
this becomes politically, at first it's very popular, especially among liberals in Germany, but then it becomes unpopular as the intensity of it grows. And Bismarck finally, you know, he imprisons, I think, 12 bishops uh, uh, and a lot of Catholic leaders, and finally decides he's going to back off. And, and by the 1880s, with the inter- somewhat intermediary work of Pope Leo XIII, they come to a more of an agreement, and actually he turns his attention to trying to fight socialism. Okay. So a big cultural struggle in Germany in the late 19th century. Okay. Uh, if you hold it there, uh, Dr. McGreevy, we'll come back and continue the conversation. I'm curious about the Papal States. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem, starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere, November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for the caregivers of the sick. O Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. You have first loved us, and through your Son, you have taught us the excellence of self-giving love. Give to those who are caregivers of a sick parent or child, brother or sister, the assistance of your holy angels. Lessen their burdens and give them great joy in practicing a work of mercy. And since charity is never forgotten by you, reveal to them their heavenly reward. Amen. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Most parents would like to raise generous kids, but where do you start? 
Well, authentic generosity doesn't start with serving strangers. It starts with looking for little ways families can make each other's lives easier at home. Start a new habit in your family. Make it a rule that everyone should look for one way to leave a room better than they found it. It doesn't matter who left the coat off the hook or who left the toy on the floor. If you see it, deal with it. The important point is, good teams don't bicker about whose job something is because everybody on the team is just committed to giving their all to get the job done. Practicing generous service at home is one of the most important things Catholic families can do. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. John McGreevy, Provost and Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame and author of Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. I, I have to say, I've, I've never... I've never really understood why the papal states were so important and why 19th century popes kind of saw their legitimacy uh, as somehow tied to the papal states. Can you sort that out for me? Yeah, you know, I think the basic answer is, remember how old the papal states were in some form or another. They existed since the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned when I talked about ultramontanism, that desire that the Catholic Church be independent, that the Pope also be independent of control by secular rulers. Well, their belief was the Papal States enabled that. And you need to be a ruler just like everybody else. Okay. And so just like there are kings and queens ruling most of Europe, in the 18th century the Pope was a, a kind of monarch. You know, with with complete control, and of course elected by the cardinals, so that's a different sort of thing. But, but also a monarch, and so you needed to have territories and revenue and an army. Remember, there was a papal army, yep. even a decrepit papal navy for a period of time. I mean, it was a class um, C state. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, very much a class C state, and very very badly run. Yeah, even sympathetic Catholics said it was run in a deeply corrupt manner. And not effectively. And, you know, famously, they got the railroad pretty late to the Papal States and everything else. That was the belief. Um, And in an era when, again, many Catholic leaders, and certainly Pius IX, had deep suspicions of secular states, they wanted their own state. They thought they needed it to keep their autonomy. Because how are they going to protect themselves, they thought, if the Italian army encircles them in Rome? And and how are they going to be able to rule a global church? Yeah. Now, it turned out popes became stronger once they lost the <laughs> I know. states, far stronger. They became viewed not as political leaders, but as moral leaders, right. and that gave them much greater weight. And as it turned out also, at the exact moment of the loss of the papal states, there's a kind of communications revolution. If you were an ordinary Catholic in the 18th century, you had no idea what the Pope looked like. Right, right. And you were vaguely aware of a Pope in Rome, but it wasn't any deep understanding of that. And maybe your local bishop you understood, but your church was your local parish and the rituals and devotions and clergy and nuns in that parish. Late 19th century, even though the papacy has lost the papal states in Italy— you have photographs, and you have 
monsoon newsreels and you have long newspaper articles and all kinds of documentation about the Pope as the spiritual leader of the world's Catholics. <laughs> and we have great evidence, some of which I cite in the book, of you know people in rural Ireland and rural Argentina knowing who the Pope was yeah. and being proud to be associated with him. And so... The, uh, many, the popes bitterly fought against the loss of the papal states in the 19th century, and in fact, it was exactly what they needed. <laughs> Could Pius IX have ever imagined uh, uh, John Paul II's uh, international prestige as a moral authority? No, I think it would have been hard, um, yeah. because John Paul II, you know, we, well, of course, a controversial figure, but, but, but if you think about the John Paul II um, going to Poland in 1979 and helping <laughs> right. cause the collapse of communism there, uh, I don't think he could have ever imagined it. Yeah. Remember, no pope left Rome between 1870 and really 1962. Wow. No one wow. left Rome. Well, let me, let me jump forward here, because I, I want to make sure we get deal with the Second Vatican Council. Um, it's... It, it's momentous. It's disruptive. You see it as somewhat parallel to the French Revolution in terms of it being momentous and disruptive. But let me ask, did anyone anticipate this two related questions? Did anyone anticipate the internal confusion that would follow the Second Vatican Council? And then did the reforms of the Second Vatican Council cause the subsequent decline in Catholic practice? Or did those reforms actually limit the effect? Yeah. On the first question, no, no one anticipated the confusion after the council. And that's because no one anticipated the confusion of the 1960s. Yeah. Okay. So what we're really talking about here is not Catholicism in Africa so much, although it has impact there too, significant impact. But think about North America and Western Europe and all the things that are happening by the late 1960s, the intense reaction against the Vietnam War, profoundly changing ideas of gender roles. This is the moment when women especially are moving into the paid labor force in record numbers. Uh, a sexual revolution, you know, uh, that moves faster and quicker than you could have really predicted. Mm -hmm. And in 1962, you know, couples living outside of marriage together, pretty scandalous, not just in religious circles, but just generally. That wasn't something that was plausible. In 1972, that's really changed. Yeah. Um, so very fast-moving cultural changes that deeply affected Catholic life. It's the simultaneous nature of the council intersecting with that that causes the turmoil. And, you know, we, we, we couldn't have predicted, I don't think, um, you know, the, the pretty significant resignation of priests, which starts before the council, but accelerates after the council. We couldn't have predicted the astonishing level of resignation of women religious. Yeah. And, and then the reluctance of young Catholic women to join religious orders. P quite profound change in a decade after the council. I could go on. So lots of very significant changes within the church that intersect with changes in the culture. On the second question, did the reforms of the council cause the decline in Catholic practice or did they limit its effect? I actually put that question in the book, and I don't know if it's a great question. One of the reviewers said, oh, that's a badly posed question. My own view is 
uh, it's simple-minded to say, oh, the cause, the council caused the decline in Catholic practice. Right. Because most of the evidence we have of a decline in Catholic practice starts before the council. Yep. Yep. It's really starting in the 1950s. We can see it now, even if it wasn't as evident then. Um, so there's a longer story to be told there about greater affluence, about less hostility to Catholicism in the culture, um, about a sense that those 19th century pious forms that were so successful in many ways were starting to lose their potency, their cultural potency. Mm-hmm. Um, all that, I think, is true. And I think if there hadn't been a council, a council that declares religious freedom is a right, mm-hmm. a council that reconciles Catholics and Jews in yep. a profound way, a council that says Catholics need to be open to, engaged in, and responsible for the modern world, not just building their own institutions. Right. I think it could have been considerably worse without a council. Mm-hmm. One piece of evidence for that is that the Catholic cultures that were the most deep and kind of intense and maybe um, too, uh, I'm searching for the word here, but all-encompassing are the ones that collapse the most quickly. Like uh, example? So, so like Quebec, okay. for example. Quebec moves from, it's perceived as, deeply Catholic culture in the late 50s to secular almost instantly wow. in the 1970s. The number of women religious, number of young women entering religious orders falls by 98% uh, in a decade. 98%. Wow. You know, almost to zero. And that was a very intense Catholic culture where the church held great political power. In a different way, the same thing I think happens a generation later in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It collapses quite quickly around questions of sex and gender and abortion and the church's political power. In a different way, again, you could even look at a city like Boston um, and see an American example. Uh, So that none of that says to me, oh, if we had just kept with the Latin Mass or we had just kept with respect for clergy or whatever that's perceived to have been lost in the 1960s, that would have been the answer. I don't think so. I think we're still moving forward, trying to figure out what happened in the Council and the 60s and 1970s, and trying to develop new forms of being church. Yeah, yeah. At the turn of the millennium, the public face of Catholicism might have been John Paul II or the recently departed Mother Teresa. They're both saints. They generated huge waves of goodwill, but in a few short years, the sexual abuse crisis squanders much of that goodwill. How widespread has been the abuse, and what were the internal failures that allowed for this devilish problem to remain so poorly handled for so long? Yeah, you know, historians are just getting involved in this question, so anything I say about it, I have to say, you know, it's kind of provisional, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it's obviously a sensitive issue. But here's my view. Uh, how widespread was the abuse? In some ways, the abuse is less shocking than the cover-up. Okay. So 
So what do we know about the abuse? You know, the best studies, including the CUNY study, think it's 3 to 5% or 3 to 7% in some places of clergy. We're talking about clerical sexual abuse yes, here, yes. primarily, um, were abusers of some type. And sometimes abusers, this could be of grown men, it could be of grown women. Obviously, the most horrifying examples are of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a that's not a, a heartening number, you know, three to seven percent. But maybe given what we now know about the widespread, sadly, um, you know, widespread how widespread sexual abuse is, it might not be that different than in other institutions yeah. where grown ups work with young people. Sure. So what we've learned about the Boy Scouts, what we've learned about other institutions, public schools, suggests that it's there as well. I'm not excusing it within Catholic culture. I'm just saying it might not be that different. I'm not persuaded, for example, that celibacy is a cause of sexual abuse. That said, why the cover-up? That does, I think, which was, I think, worse in the Catholic context than in many other contexts. It was more pervasive, it was more secretive, um, and that led to untold damage because abusers were able to commit abuse again. Yeah. Uh, that is a legacy of ultramontanism, uh, in my view. The veneration of the, of the, of the clergy, the um, coalescing of power uh, in the parish, you know, pastor, but then the bishop, and then mm-hmm. even the Vatican. Yeah. The tendency of Catholics not to question authority. Um, so many of these sexual abuse counts talk, accounts talk about young people saying to their parents that they were being abused, and their parents not believing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, no priest could do that uh, sort of answer. All of that was a consequence, in some ways of that ultramontane respect for the papacy, focus on the church as an institution, um, kind of barricading yourself off from society, assuming that criticism means anti-Catholicism. Right. That's what's most interesting to me and tragic. Not the abuse itself, which is, of course, horrific and tragic in its initial manifestation, but the cover-up, which enables more abuse and I think is traceable to a particular Catholic culture and respect for authority that in some ways could be good, but in other ways was hugely destructive. John, thank you so much. Uh, Outstanding work. I appreciate it. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Do you have an unrelated twin, a doppelganger, walking around somewhere? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Scripture points to many who may have been actual twins. 
Doubting Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, may have been a twin. His surname is Didymus, which means double or twofold. Is it possible for each of us to have a twin of sorts, an unrelated person who so closely resembles us that they pass for a twin? Research cited by Dr. Peter Atia indicates that 99.9% of the human genome is identical across all humans. So it is possible that at least one of the billions on Earth could have a slight bit more genetic material that makes them look like me or you. But it isn't just looks. Even certain behavior studies tend to be more similar in lookalikes. The next time someone says you look like George Clooney, research says it's possible. For more on this, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Good afternoon. I'm Al Creston. I thank you for being with me. Uh, I want to say congratulations. Uh, we've got some outstanding affiliates there. Eternal Life Radio in Fitchburg and Shirley, Massachusetts, celebrating their 11th year with EWTN. We've got uh, congratulations going out to Evangelist Radio in Somersville, West Virginia, celebrating their 13th year with EWTN. And Holy Family Communications in Shenandoah, Virginia, nine years with us. So congratulations to all of you from your friends here at EWTN. And thank you for being with me today. You can follow up on our conversations by going to EWTN, going to AveMariaRadio.net, and look to the Cresta Guest Archives. You'll find um, follow-up information on the topics that we had today. Uh, also, the book uh, that I referred to, Catholicism, uh, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis, by uh, John McGreevy. That's available in the online bookstore as well. I'm Al Cresta. See you tomorrow. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.